Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by the one and only Matt Cummings. All right, tonight, an exclusive interview with Thor. Conductor Gary Thorwedo, that is. Oliver's going inside the huddle with the God of Thunder, or at least the orchestra pit, to talk about what young singers need to succeed in the 21st century with repertoire that's considerably older than that. And then it's another Summer Hall of Fame here at Opera Box Score. This time, it's Matt's turn to decide who gets to join what is fast becoming the most prestigious opera honorarium in podcasting. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Tamara Wilson drops out of Aida for a pretty important reason. The Opera Prism wins again, and the Operalia winners get lots of money. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score, or post on our Facebook page. So many options, and without further ado, Matt Cummings, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm normally not in the co-pilot seat. I'm typically, like, back in the corner. <laughs> how does it feel to be the, the the right hand? It's an awful lot of responsibility. I hope I can possibly <laughs> live up to the example set by well, my Well, uh, let's see right now. Um, uh, do you know anything about sports? Yikes. I'm sorry you failed. we got to talk about opera now. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. That's right, we're going inside the huddle. Gary Thorwedo is a conductor whose many affiliations include the Seattle, Florida Grand, Boston Lyric, Glimmerglass, Wolf Trap, and New York City Opera Companies. His reputation is built on bringing historically performed performance practice to the wider opera-going audience outside of the early music zone, and oh, what a beautiful zone it is with all of their waistcoats and powdered wigs. Oliver Camacho caught up with the Maestro Wado at the Amherst Early Music Festival, where, according to Oliver, there are more recorders than there are people, and where all singers learn how to trill from above. That's a great way to start. I'm here with Gary Thorwedo, uh, who just completed um, this project we are doing here at Amherst Early Music Festival, which was a concept by Drew Minter called Ankio, or hashtag Ankio, uh, the story of Ariadne in uh, five scenes. And uh, it was a great success, and uh, I'm so happy to get to work with you again. 
as you could hear, we're in a space where there are lots of singers, so you might hear some people warming up in the background. Uh, but congratulations on last night. Oh, thank you. And Oliver, congratulations to you, because without your superb organizational wow. skills and your incredible, tireless optimism, it never would have happened. Cool. And one of my favorite moments last night was when I began to give a downbeat for one of the movements, and I saw you off stage going, Don't don't start yet. They're not in costume. I thought, ah, live theater. And this is why I love live theater. It was great. Well, I mean, I everybody who listens to the show knows that I come here every year. And it's because I really love this music, A. But B, I love the opportunity to work with artists who are this age. You know, yes. Who are out of school or finishing up school and are trying to figure out their path. And some of them haven't really been on stage that much. And they get a crash course here. Yes. Um, can you talk about a little bit about your affection for working with young singers? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I feel continually young when I'm around you young are. people. You are. You're younger than well, me. Thank you. <laughs> and I had such great training when I was young, um, and most of it, or much of it, by chance. Um, I studied with, if you want to say, I didn't study with the piano piano teacher I wanted to study with because he was filled up. So he said, I'm sending you to my colleague, George Bolette, who was a big um, Liszt pianist and a great virtuoso. And I was disappointed because the man I was going to study with, Sidney Foster, had a technique, and I wanted to learn the Foster technique. But as it turned out, studying with George, um, he was this huge musician. He had studied conducting with Fritz Reiner. Uh, he loved opera. He, lo he encouraged me to go into collaborative piano, and he was one of the first people that said, I think you're going to be a conductor. Hmm. So... That was just chance. So I feel every opportunity I have to work with a young performer and somehow help them in some practical way, in some musical way, is a way of paying back all those great teachers I had. Um, and here at Amherst, uh, it's a crash course. It's a week of intensive music rehearsals, staging rehearsals, movement classes. And it's in a specific kind. The operas are staged, as you well know, in Baroque style. So you have to learn this big vocabulary of acting, which many singers don't have. So it's not just getting through your scenes program, but it's acting in a style and sometimes singing in a style that is completely new to you. So it's it's incredibly exciting seeing these these young, very hungry, curious people uh, blossom in a week. Yeah. <laughs> in the six days, yes. Six days, yeah. six days, yeah. yeah. So now that you've done this a couple of years and also the other types of teaching and conducting you do outside of Amherst, what are some of the common themes that you are finding uh, with, you know, not my generation, but, you know, the generation of kids who are coming out of their training programs right now? What are the things that you feel like, oh, they're not getting this, and this is what I'm going to give them? Well, uh, it, it, 
I have to say that it's so different now. When I think of myself when I was in my 20s, um, the opera business, the concert business was flourishing. Um, People, Lincoln Center had been built. Um, A lot of big auditoriums, theaters were being built. It was a very prosperous time. So opera companies were saying, we're going to add a production. We're going to add performances of this. That's when a lot of the young artist programs started up. Mm -hmm. So I feel I grew up in an era where there were expanding horizons and more and more opportunities. When I moved to Boston and then later New York, I never had to have a job. For for two years, when I worked my way through the New England Conservatory, I worked as a waiter. But by the end of my first year, I was making more money as a pianist hmm. than as a waiter, so I quit being a waiter. Hmm. It's different now. Everything is so much more expensive. It's It's harder to make a living. It's harder to live in those big cities. Um, New York is now a rich person city. So I feel this very, there's this very fragile time. When you're in school, you're protected. You're given projects to do. Um, we're going to cast you as a countess in Marriage of Figaro next semester. And we're going to give you voice lessons. And we're going to give you coachings and movement classes and, and, and. You graduate from school, and if you're lucky enough to get into a young artist program, that's great. And if you don't, you have to keep making your own young artist program. You have to find places like here at Amherst Early Music Festival where you can get training, where you can... uh, One of the things I love about here was... um, our choreographer, Kaspar Mainz, Kaspar Mainz um, was telling the cellist how to play the Deutsche Tanzes mm-hmm. um, because he wanted a lustier kind of more of a beer fiddler feel. <laughs> and she was getting it straight from somebody who had just come from Vienna. Yeah. So it's... Um, but that's... It's this fragile time when these very talented people graduate from school, maybe don't have enough of a career yet to support themselves completely by singing. How do they stay in the business for that four, five, ten years that it may take them to get their career going? How do they keep the courage? How do they keep growing? Um, How do they network? How do they compete with people that are in Cadillac, um, limousine, young artist programs, where really it's they nurture you and then they almost have responsibility to hire you. Or whose families can support their kids while they continue to get degree after degree, you know? Amen. Amen. But... You have to have, I think as a young artist, you have to have a kind of indefatigable hunger. And um, 
you know, you can, you should only go in this into this business if you can't do anything else. And I used to think that meant if you were too stupid to do anything else. But now I realize emotionally you can't do anything else except music because I, I know too many of my colleagues that are like, yeah, I'm getting out of the business, I'm getting a law degree, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm getting out, I'm getting into real estate. Five years later, they're back. They're back with a passion, yeah. um, many of them. Um, and it's because they can't, they can't let it go. And so, um, but it's a very rich time. I mean, if, if the opera business and the classical music business is in a little bit of a crisis and in a bit, little bit of a firefight, the problem is not on the supply side. Mm. The supply side is very, very healthy, mm -hmm. which makes me optimistic for the future. But we have to keep nurturing these kind of in-between people, in-between school and a career that's going oh, to There's support. so many ways we can go from there, but we have a singer this year in the cast, who is Regina, who is going to be, she's going to be a star. Let's just yes. she, Well, know. last night yeah. she was a star. Yeah. But, I mean, she's in this in-between space right now, yes. and, you know, we hear that, and we know that there's something very, very special there. But, um, you know, how do we give people like her a space to find what her unique talent is and what, what repertoire is for her, you know, I mean, she can go anywhere, but she's got the flexibility in her voice. She's got this interesting tone quality. She's got this really formidable stage presence, you know, but I can't think of someplace where she's ready for right now, you know, like where she could walk into whatever New York city opera or something like that. Like she's not quite there yet, but she's so close to like putting it all right. together, you know? Right. And that's why places like this are important. Anyway, that was a tangent. Uh, what I wanted to... No, add... I think that's a very... You know, um, last night after the concert, I went home, mm -hmm. and I wanted um, a snacks, an mm -hmm. evil um, an evil snack. And so I thought, <laughs> I want a bag of Fritos. <laughs> and they're in the vending machine. Yeah. So I went down to the vending machine, and I ran into Regina's parents. Mm -hmm. And we, while they were waiting to pick her up, to take her home, and they said, "Oh, we love her so much, but we are, uh, we are nervous. We're afraid. What's going to happen for her because she doesn't have enough jobs consistently to keep going?" And, but again, I feel you have to have this faith and this faith in yourself. Um, you have to surround yourself with a network of friends that believe in you and will support you. It, it'd be wonderful if they could support you financially and mm -hmm. pay for your voice lessons. But I think sometimes emotional support is just yeah. as important. Well, so. it's great that they got to hear the audience reactor here yesterday because this yes. is a very educated audience. Yes. And they are very enthusiastic about everybody, but I've never heard that type of reaction yeah. before. So. Yeah. I, I have seldom heard that type of reaction. I mean, only from the great opera singers in yeah. the great opera houses. So, yeah. And I saw her face. Yeah. Take it in. It was she almost like, lost it. Yeah. Yes. I love those moments. It was yeah. exciting. It was exciting. So I get to watch you work 
uh, at a very like kind of crisis level. Like you know, when we when we arrive here, we're already in the thick of things. Yeah. But I'm in, and like I see what things you consider to be like the crux of every musical piece, and that's to me it's very informative to know. Okay, well, like if you only have this much time, you're going to work on this. You know, right. so when you're not in this, when you don't have to work this way. What is your strategy towards approaching a piece of music with a singer and finding those, you know, very special characters of a piece that really bring them to life? Well, you're a director, right? Some people might say that. I say that. Um, You're a director. Um, I I deal mostly, I deal mostly in theatrical music. Um, it's the text. Mm-hmm. It's the text. You ha- absolutely have to start with the text because that's what the composer did. Mm-hmm. And the music that we deal in is theatrical music. So I feel my job is to bring that theatricality to life. And what I look for in a wonderful director is a person that's going to put the music on stage and not give a, I don't mind if it's set on the moon or if it's <laughs> set in 2775 or in, you know, 300. The dinosaur era. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. But is it true to the text and true Amen. to the piece and true to the drama? Because I think my job is to infuse the music with the drama and the director's job is to put the music on the stage so the audience the audience hears what it sees and i think that is so it's this kind of um and i sometimes kibitz with directors you know what what do you think about this and and that's one of the things i've loved about working with drew we have to work in a very very fast way um, and every once in a while Drew will say oh we actually just rehearsed for 15 yeah, minutes yeah. where we all talk about something and decide but I like to say oh there's a rest here that belongs to the singer there must be a reaction from the singer in that rest it's just not a beat yeah no I hear you talking to the orchestra about what's happening you know yes and I, I love that work yeah. I really do because like there's I feel there are conductors who don't pay attention to the libretto and there are stage directors who don't even read music and yes. it's like what is this this is opera yes yeah. it's crazy it's crazy and orchestra players um, I think orchestra players want to play but if you tell them what they're playing, this is a vengeance aria, this is a love aria, this is, um, well, of course, this, this was an evening of laments yeah. and vengeance and yeah. me too and, yeah. and horrible regret, yeah. and, but all through, seen through so many different prisms. Yeah. Um, it, it was fabulous. And the minute that you get the orchestra engaged in the theatricality of it, mm-hmm. You get a better you. Everything makes sense. Yeah, the length of the staccato notes, how loud to play things, the length of the tenuto. Um, what is the articulation? How should we play the the beginning of this note? Um, there are a million different yeah. ways. But if you say um, this is. Um, what we talked about in one of actually Regina's arias that it's um, 
right out of Messiah, he turned his back to the smiters. It's all... And I like to feel it's a barbecue that Ariadne (laughs) is heating up the barbecue to roast Theseus on the barbecue and so we can get that sizzling string quality. The minute I explained that to the orchestra, and I could have said, okay, I want the front edge of the sound, we want a chiff sound, we want this, we want that, but... If you engage their imagination. Yeah. Well, we're lucky to be working here with, uh, you know, Baroque music, which is all affects, yes. and it's very easy to explain those things. But yeah. how do you, how do you bring that to, you know, well, Mozart is such a great composer, but how do you bring that to other composers that may not have such very specific affects, where it's more like psychological subtext, that type of thing, you know? Well, I do a lot of Mozart, and and. Haydn, and I tell orchestras, I want you to look at this music as if the last music you just played was Handel. I don't want you to look backwards at this music. If you look backwards at Mozart through Mahler, that's a very muddy glass to look through. But if you look at it through Haydn, Mm-hmm. with its um, very intellect or Bach, with its very intellectual, very studied, very deep harmonic and contrapuntal language, Mozart is a revelation because it's a brand new style. It's like modern music. It's like Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, the audience is hearing Don Giovanni and Nazi di Fiero must have thought they were listening to Hamilton. They were like, what is this? This is such different music. And it's... So I like to get players to look at it as contemporary music um, and inventively and also invested in the drama. Now, Mozart doesn't write in affects quite the way Handel or Bach would, but Mozart has this musical language where he's able to paint individual words, individual phrases with these beautiful melodies that actually not only reflect what the words say, but what they mean. So if you do Mozart the right way, it's, it's A, it's not always beautiful, because there's there are a lot of moments in Mozart operas where we're dealing with tragic, comedic, um, so so you have to get this variety of sound out of Mozart, and you also have to get the emotional context out of the melodic line. Uh, so. I could listen to you talk about Mozart forever, and I might just ask you one question to finish up just to make me feel great about this interview, because I really feel great about it, but is there one aria in a Mozart opera or one scene where you have thought about it in a way that when you express it to your musicians and singers, they're like, oh, and they everybody just did it in a beautiful, different new way because of something that you thought of that you were able to communicate? Well, it, it wasn't something I thought of, but one of the 
most fun revelations I've had, and it ties in so much with Amherst. This is going to bring the whole thing home. In in the marriage of Figaro, in yes. the actual marriage scene, mm-hmm. they dance a fandango. It's beautiful music, but it's often played in a kind of... I, no insult to any of my conducting colleagues, but it's often played in a kind of square, mm-hmm. very pretty, um, nice, polite mm-hmm. manner. And what I found was the first Figaro had made much of his career in Spain. Hmm. So he clearly knew how to, to dance, dance a fandango. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure... Da Ponte and Mozart knew this, so they said, oh, let's let's write a, I think it was Benucci of the first Figaro, let's put a Fandango in. <laughs> let's, this is fabulous. It'll give him a chance to dance. And, and, and then um, the more I studied about the dance, the more it, it, it's, um, it started out as a peasant dance that then became, like many of them, yeah. were, were brought into the palace. But I try now to, whenever I do it, to make the gestures very exaggerated, to make the style um, more Spanish, yeah, more lusty, really yeah. Spanish, <laughs> lusty, yeah. and use the techniques that I've learned here at Amherst, working with um, Dorothy Olson and Caspar Mainz on the... Um, on the dances, because the important thing with dances um, is the character. It's not, oh, you move your right foot here, you move your left foot here. Yeah. Is this a courtship dance? Is yeah. this a romantic dance? Is this a noble dance? Yeah. And all of the Mozart operas, there um, is a wonderful um, musicologist, Y. Jameson, who's written a book about Nazi di Figaro and Don Giovanni, saying that every one of the tunes in those operas is a dance. So that's that's what I've learned. Yes, yes, yes. That's a contra dance, right? Contra dance, yes, exactly. And the wonderful moment in... In Don Giovanni, where you have three dances going on simultaneously. (laughs) Like here, you hear different music coming out of every room, and it all kind of comes together. Well, we are at a festival, and the commotion is building backstage, because even though we did our opera and we're relaxing today, there are bunch of concerts that are just about to start so we have to end this interview unfortunately yes. but I hope that if you come to Chicago we could do this again because there's clearly so much more we could talk about oh, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I, I'd love to and I, I love and so admire you and your work oh, Oliver <laughs> so. well thank you very much thank you and thank you Oliver for that amazing interview coming up next it's Matt's turn to put someone in the opera box score hall of fame who's gonna pick That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble... Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Oh, that is just the best intro. I love that intro. I, I, I want to talk over it. I, I don't want to talk over it anytime. It's one of those things where I feel like Norm could just submit that to anywhere, and he, he's got the job immediately. I know. Yeah. You're great. welcome. So who are we talking about today? So a little bit of background about my choice for today. I'm going to do a, a slow wind-up. Ooh, a slow the, burn. The very first classical record that I ever seriously listened to was the Carrion recording of Bohem with Franny and Pavarotti. Oh, solid. The second recording that I ever really listened to was the Carl Böhm Magic Flute. Oh, okay. Which features in the role of Tamino, the German tenor Fritz Wunderlich. Is that who we're talking who about today? Who is my pick <laughs> to induct into the into the OBS Can I just Hall say, that's a wonderful choice. Thank you very much. <laughs> so Fritz Wunderlich is a German tenor who was never really got to take off all the way in his own time because he died tragically at the age of 35 mm. right before he was about to really break out onto the international stage and his singing is often held up as like the paragon of a Mozart tenor singing because his his voice is like gleaming and it's smooth and it's even and when you dig even deeper beyond those elements of his his singing uh, his legato and his breath control and his vowel placement make him instantly recognizable and a perfect fit for Mozart. So a little, just a little bit of biographic information. He was born in 1930 into Germany uh, that was where the Nazis were in power. <laughs> yeah, but his true. family, unlike most singers of that era, were not members of the party. Oh, really? And in fact, huh. his father actually took his own life. Uh, due to some drama that a fallout of local Nazi rep, reps and who pressuring him into joining hmm. the party. Hmm. So Fritz Wunderlich grew up in a musical family. He played the horn and several other brass instruments and studied uh, stu- studied singing at conservatory. He he is primarily associated with the Stuttgart Opera, which was a pretty important house in Germany, <laughs> uh, and he got his. First international break uh, in Richard Strauss's uh, The Silent Woman or Die Schweigsame Frau at, mm. Salt, at the Salzburg Festival in 1959. So, without further ado, I'd like to dive into my clip number one, which is the beginning of uh, Dies Bildnis, the, the Tamino's aria from Act One of The Magic Flute. And this is from the Böhm recording that I was talking about earlier.
so uh just a disclaimer that on this recording uh, this is Mozart from the 50s and 60s, so it right. is not Mozart like you're going to hear <laughs> This is today. not the period performance at Amherst. No, no, no. <laughs> it's big band. It's kind of bombastic, capital R, romantic. Not that fleeter, more rhythmic style that's more popular today. And honestly, when I go to listen to a Mozart opera, I it's kind of a hard choice for me whether I want to listen to something that is a little, that make musically makes more sense. Right. Or has some of the voices that I absolutely love. And with Wunderlich... He wins out more often than I would than I let mo- most other singers. It's such a win. pure voice, you know. It, yeah, the the shine in his tone, that shimmer, is so classic Wunderlich, and he can keep it going through any part of his range, especially the part where where Mozart writes his tenor music. Uh, Mozart tenor music tends to sit in what's called the passaggio of the voice, which is Italian Mm. for passageway. And it's because it's the passageway between your normal speaking voice and your high register. Okay. And the thing that is so difficult about the passaggio is that it's very difficult to negotiate that in a way that sounds free, easy, and open, (laughs) and will let you kind of turn over and hit those high notes yeah and with wunderlich you never get the sense that he even has to do any work at all because you there is no compromise in his vowels right they stay what they they stay totally pure you could take dictation off that german yeah and (laughs) even when it gets to the hardest part of the aria yeah uh which we're gonna listen listen to right (laughs) let's 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 hear it Cannot stress enough how much easier he makes that sound than it is to sing. <laughs> the, those leaps, oh. yeah, the leaps go are all over the place, and they pretty much encapsulate that whole range of the voice that I was talking about, the passaggio, because they a lot of them go from like B flats to high G, and those places are worlds apart in the tenor voice, and he makes them sound totally unified every time. Right, uh, and that kind of seamless register transitions. It is a hallmark of what you want in good Mozart singing because you mm. want total elegance and evenness and grace. Those are, those are, and he just has that in spades. And one of the things that I love about Wunderlich's voice is that his ooh vowel has such a bright, high ring to it that it almost sounds like he's saying an E vowel. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, that, that for me is like how I can identify him right away. Right. And it, and it's just because of that ping in his voice that just never ever ever goes away 
Yeah. Oh, gone too soon. I know. So <laughs> staying in Mozart for a little bit, we're going to listen to another aria, a pretty famous tenor aria that you might know, but you'll notice something different about this recording. Okay, let's hear it. Jawohl. Yeah. So not the usual language for Il Mio Tesoro from Don Giovanni. Uh, Wunderlich sang mostly in a time when when regional houses and even uh, even the biggest houses in in countries would do all of their operas in the local vernacular. Right. No no super titles back in the day. And there are some recordings that you can find of him singing in Italian, but they're honestly pretty hard to find. This was from the EMI, like very best of Fritz Wunderlich collection. Gotcha. They even they 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 even they put the German versions on and on but I think the reason why they might have put the German version on is because no one does that scalar flourish yeah. in one breath. <laughs> that uh, that was amazing. Hardly any I, I shouldn't say no one. There are others. But his breath control is such that he sings that whole thing that if you're looking at a sheet of music is about an entire page. And most people take at least one, if not two breaths in the places oh, where he goodness. took none. Uh, and reportedly this goes back to his experience as a horn player. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a funny story where he did it accidentally in performance one time because, uh, Karyan wanted him to take a breath early and he missed it. And then instead of shoehorning a breath in somewhere else, he's like, well, I guess I may as well just go until the end. So what that we could all do that, like Fritz Wunderlich. Uh, Oh, the man. next selection that I have prepared uh, does go back to an original German language aria, and it, but it, but it is still Mozart, and this is the Ich baue Gans, the architect's aria from uh, the abduction from the Seraglio, uh, and it has something. It, it has the the same kind of scalar coloratura, fl- uh, florid music in common with Il Mio Tesoro, but it like ups the ante several notches. So let's take a listen. I'll listen to that now. So I sing this aria, actually. Do you sound like that? I wish. <laughs> it's tricky coloratura, and once again, it sits in a part of the voice that is really hard to navigate with the vowel, but he never compromises on his vowels. And even though uh, he was singing in an era where tenors weren't suppo- weren't really expected to be able to uh, 
execute tough scalar passages like this mm. the way they are today from like a Juan Diego Flores or a Larry sure, Brownlee sure. or even the the generation before that like Rockwell Blake or Chris Merritt tenors like that that kind of specialized in the florid bel canto stuff this, this was like about as far as they would go in terms of asking tenors to sing runs <laughs> back in the 50s and 60s and even though it's 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 a bit of a stately tempo but he handles it really well uh, it, even through all of those coloratura twists and chromatic, like little chromatic twists that alter the the harmony of the line, he makes them sound so natural and graceful and effortless, and is able to both sing every single note and articulate every single note, but never loses his legato. He never loses the connection in between his, in between uh, each and every note and the that kind of thread that you can feel pulling through the voice and there's just never any doubt that he's going to make it. Yeah, there's there's something really sort of uh, uh, magical to it. Uh, Toby couldn't be here today, but he did send in something when he heard we were talking about uh, Fritz. Uh, I just want to read a little bit. He says, um, I romanticize Fritz like everyone else, perhaps because of the era in which he sang and perhaps because of the untimely death he suffered before truly entering his prime. Uh, one thing is for certain that we don't romanticize or try to emulate singers who did not have a profound impact on the art form. The recording of him singing to a studio audience in 1966 in Salzburg particularly uh, disabilities, in my opinion, is actual perfection. Um, and uh, he also, <laughs> I won't read the entire thing, but he also says that he felt, uh, Toby fell in love with Schubert because he heard Fritz singing his music. And he also accused you of uh, hating Schubert. Is that true? It's Matt? true that I think Schubert is overrated. <laughs> but do you think that Schubert uh, could be saved by Fritz? Uh, I w- one of the exceptions uh, of my general... I avoid Schubert when I can rule is the <laughs> Fritz Wunderlich recording of Die Schöne Millerin, the, the, the first big song cycle that Schubert wrote. So we have a little bit of, we have a little clip from uh, Ungeduld or Impatience. <laughs> That got a little bit. Comp- the sound quality of that got compressed a little bit in uh, in adapting it for the radio. But what you can still hear, I think, is that he is shaving down his tone quality into something that's a little bit more transparent and something that fits into the scale of an art song better than it does in an opera. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, like, opera singers a lot of times when they're singing art song can kind of sound like you're trying to shove too much sausage filling into the casing, <laughs> and it it just sort of distorts the music of the song. It distorts the language. You don't get text. It really overpowers the phrasing. Yeah. Uh, And he worked actually very consciously and very hard with the pianist from this recording, uh, uh, Giesen, in order to kind of pull back and use his whole voice, but not his whole, like, vocalism. Right. Uh, On the other side of the scale, I I, I picked both the Schubert clip and this next clip to show that he wasn't in a Mozart box. Just because everyone loves his Mozart singing and that's what he recorded a lot and that's what he does so well, 
that shouldn't I don't want anyone to take away from the from this Hall of Fame that he could only sing Mozart well because here is him uh, slinging red sauce with the best of them in a clip <laughs> uh, from a recording of La Traviata conducted by Giuseppe Patane and featuring Teresa Stratus as Violetta. <laughs> Maybe not the best Italian in the entire world, but creditable <laughs> considering he sang most of his career in German. And there, there's that kind of throb that you want in an Italian voice. He was totally capable of delivering that too. That Italian throb. Yeah. Where, where is Oliver when he did? I, I know he he would have jumped all <laughs> over that one. So now we come to the tragic part of the story. He died in a f- kind of a freak accident at a friend's hunting lodge. He fell down a stone staircase, fractured his skull, and never woke up from his coma Mm. and there's like kind of a lot of conspiracy theories that he that his shoelaces were tied together as a prank or he was drunk or someone punched him in the face for leering at their wife or something like that but in all in all likelihood it was probably an accident and he he died one month before he was supposed to make his met debut in in the role of don otavio and don giovanni and this was at the age of 35 so as we listen to this play out i want you to take away his grace his effortlessness, his elegance, his, his good-natured character that really manifests itself in his voice, and just the joy in singing. And this is uh, from an operetta little ditty called Dynast Mein Ganzes Herz from, uh, by Lehar. Dynast Mein Ganzes Herz Wo du nicht bist Kann ich nicht sein. So wie die Blume welkt, wenn sie nicht küsst, der Sonnenschein. Dein ist mein schönstes Lied, weil es Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. Soprano Tamara Wilson did not perform Aida Sunday night in Verona after a string of posts detailing her attempted refusal to wear skin-darkening makeup and a bodysuit for a historic presentation of the opera. Wilson called the makeup wrong and said she, quote, didn't want to be a cog in the wheel of institutionalized racism that she felt the darkening of the skin represented. However, it should be noted that the uh, the announcement that she would not be performing Sunday was due to illness. Countertenor David Daniels and his husband, William Walters were both indicted for sexual assault in Texas last week. This is the latest development in a case that began with multiple accusations against the singer last year. An article in Gay Star News analyzes the queer subtext made into text at Glyndebourne's recent production of Massenet's Cendrillon. Kate Lindsay, who plays Prince Charming in the production, told the website, quote, It's a story in which two women fall in love with each other, and that love can be equally as real as the classic fairy tale. We'll have a link to that article on our website. The Music Critics Association of North America has awarded Prism by composer Ellen Reed and librettist Roxy Perkins with the title of Best New Opera. That's after the opera, which deals with the trauma of sexual assault, won the Pulitzer Prize earlier this year. Opera Nationale de Paris has confirmed rumors that Alexander Neef will take over from Stéphane Lissner as the next director of the company, likely starting in 2021. Neef is currently the general manager of the Canadian Opera Company. Soprano Adriana Gonzalez from Guatemala and tenor uh, Javier Anduaga from Spain have been named first prize winners of the 2019 edition of Operalia and will both receive $30,000 in prize money. Second place was awarded to Maria Kateva, a mezzo-soprano from Russia, and Gihun Kim, baritone from South Korea. They'll each get $20,000. And the 10000 third place prize goes to Christina Nielsen, soprano from Sweden, and friend of the show Arya Nussbaum-Koem, countertenor from USA-Germany. On the disabled list, Marius Kvichen has canceled again, this time in the title role of Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin at the Ozawa Music Festival. He'll be replaced by Levin Birki. Uh, Elizabeth Deschong has pulled out of Glyndebourne's production of Handel's Ronaldo for personal reasons to be replaced by a friend of the show, Jakob Josef Orlinski. Danielle Denise will replace Cecilia Bartoli as Cleopatra in Handel's Giulio Cesare at La Scala in October. And Jonas Kaufmann is out yet again of the D. Meistersinger von Nuremberg. Uh, at the Bavarian State Opera this week. Exit stage left. M. Owen Lee, known to a certain set of opera fans as Father Lee, died last week at the age of 89. 
the Catholic priest was known to many as an opera quiz participant and commentator during Saturday afternoon radio broadcasts from the Metropolitan Opera between 1983 and 2006. And on this day, July 29th, the birthdays of Olga Borodina in 1963 and Peter Schreier in 1953, and the composer Alexander Mozilov was also born on this day in 1900. And that is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Was a portion of Prism, which is just winning all the awards. Congratulations to Congrats. Prism. Maybe they'll make it into the Hall of Fame someday. Of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard at this point. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Just one quick correction. Uh, Peter Schreier was born in 1935. Oh, what did not I say? 1953. Oh, oh no. It's easy to do, Weston. I just flip um, those. The, flip the those best numbers. of us at many Times I was distracted so. by uh, Prism. Uh, the uh, I think Prism is really interesting. It really it's really uh, frustrating to me that there's no full recording of this opera yet, even though it's now won a Pulitzer and this award. But I feel like they're gonna do it soon. Yeah, recording contracts are not the same that they used to be back in the heyday when it's people tricky. actually bought CDs. But I, I think that uh, my theory is that they're gonna release it fairly soon because uh, when this piece won the Pulitzer, I looked it up and uh, and heard like the trailer. Uh, and they had a bunch of uh, clips on SoundCloud, and those clips have now been taken down, which uh-huh. leads me to believe that they might be aiming for a commercial release. Well, fingers crossed that you'll have a good call in the future. Yeah, here we go. And uh, I, I should also point out um, that I think that Prism, uh, a story about sexual assault, surviving the trauma of sexual assault, is really appropriate uh, to be in the news this week. Um with you sort of the it. other side of it, yeah. with the David Daniels case. Um, I mean, it's it, it, it's uncommon enough that cases like this actually get prosecuted. Right. So uh, uh, while it might be naive to hope for justice, uh, there are like things are happening at least right. instead of just letting it letting it fall by the wayside. His his statements. Uh, his public statements ha- are, are some of the most disgusting things They're I've ever read about, about his accuser only wanting to do this for attention and just the the I really goes to show that like a, a a dog with its back against the wall. Yeah, exactly. Or, a, or any kind of someone someone who's being cornered is like more apt to to lash out. I'm hoping that this indictment and um, the success of Prism, you know, and and things like that are, are sort of indicative of a shift in thought, you know, from yeah. uh, the old ways to new and better ways. Which brings us to uh, the lovely and incredibly talented and principled. Uh, <laughs> 
American soprano Tamara Wilson. May I say, just an amazing segue. So for a little bit of background here, um, she posted on social media, I think it was initially a video she put on her Facebook profile. I wasn't able to access that. However, she did write down everything she said on Instagram. Yeah, there's a, no- there's a number of lengthy Instagram posts about her experience working with the make work- working with the makeup in this production. So this is the for the uh, 50th anniversary or anniversary of uh, of uh, Placido Domingo. Uh, it, it's a historic production. It's like a hundred years from, old. Yeah, 1913. It is crazy old. So naturally, it has uh, blackface. Not to you know, and not jump even right the it. and not even the borderline stuff that you'll oh, see no. in the Met these days. Like I, this is I. We're talking like grease paint. Really offensive. Yeah, it's um. She uh, basically, I believe she was scheduled for three performances. Uh, and her first post, I just want to read a little bit of uh, because it's it's amazing to me that this is this was posted so publicly and so out in the open. Very brave of her, I might add. Uh, it says, hey, everybody, I just want to take this time to tell you about a situation in Verona. I'm here doing the IDA performances and I did a performance Sunday night. My debut is the first time in the whole makeup and costumes. And I knew this production was the historical 1913 premiere production. And I was naive to think they wouldn't put me in the makeup, but they put me in the makeup. Um, she says, uh, I should have stuck up for myself at that point uh, and said no, but I didn't. Uh, um, and she and she, uh, her makeup artist asked her what the matter was. And she said, I'm doing this. This is a horrible thing. Uh, quote, the quote is, I'm like, this is a horrible thing. This is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and she and the, the makeup artist apparently responded, uh, this is normal. And she was like, normal doesn't mean right. And she goes on to say that she thought about canceling the remaining performances, but instead got in contact with her manager, who negotiated to remove this from her costume for the main, remaining two performances. And here's where things get a little bit tricky. Yeah. So she had a couple performances left. Um, uh, and after that initial post, uh, she did post uh, this. The show is over. It's 1 a.m. Uh, I won the battle but lost the war. I did get the makeup lightened, so I still shades darker than my own skin, but it wasn't the pure black paint that it was to begin with. I'd asked for sleeves, but they didn't add any. Uh, I'm hoping that was because it was too tight a turnaround between asking and the show. Uh, um, and she says she's going to keep fi- uh, fighting. And she also uh, says, hey, kids, become fluent in all languages because sticking up for yourself when no one understands you is extremely difficult. Uh, and that was her last post for a couple days. And then uh, I believe Sunday morning, um, the, the, the date of the last show, she posts this. Quote, I regret that I will be unable to perform Aida with Maestro Domingo tonight, celebrating his 50th anniversary, especially after a wonderful rehearsal yesterday. Last night, I became ill. I wish Maestro, all my colleagues, and the amazing orchestra all the very best for this special night, and I look forward to uh, returning to the great arena very soon. Uh, This is like a real bar raiser in terms of singer behavior when, when faced with these... When, when faced with these situations, because it's not it, it's not the singer's choice, and for many, for, for everyone who defends this as a tradition, there are just as many people probably who are uncomfortable with right. it. But most people don't speak up because of the the way that the industry has everything stacked against any one individual who like, wants to move and change. Things. And posting it this publicly, I, I mean, I'm I. I have to say, you know, completely unjournalistically, you know, professional of me. I I don't think that her illness is really an illness. But even if it is, the fact that she posted this on Facebook after all of that is just it takes a lot of chutzpah. It's so brave, and this is one of this is one of those debates that no one has been afraid. People are afraid to publicly challenge when they're in it. 
You know, we've talked about this before, and and it's uh, uh and I think that her standing up for this is one of the most publicly brave things I've seen an opera singer do. Yeah. Uh, uh, aside from maybe you know going up and singing five hours of Wagner, but you know, it's, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I'm absolutely supportive of Tamara Wilson in this, and I hope uh, our listeners will be too. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Just well, I do. I just want to clarify that earlier when I when I referred to the the Met the the makeup that's standard at the Met uh, uh, as borderline. I don't mean to minimize that at all right. because it is it, <laughs> while it, that that kind of skin darkening is uh, is just honestly unacceptable. Oh, I sh- we should also point out that uh, Tamara Wilson has also said that she's she's scheduled for a couple more uh, ideas that do not uh, require uh, face paint, and after that, she does not intend to take on any more staged Aida uh, uh, performances, and that's that's amazing and just such a a big risk yeah i really i really applaud her using her platform as someone who is who was broken through and gotten to a level of success where she can can use that success to help lift up other singers absolutely all right we got to wrap it up good call bad call on opera box score Ah, good show tonight even though it was just the two of us i know we did okay for ourselves we did it high five that, wow. was, that was a high five. That Foley art is just unparalleled. <laughs> that's why. That's really what makes us the the preeminent opera radio show slash podcast out there in the do market. You have a good call for me, Matt. I do. If you're interested in getting to know Agrippina, a show that's going to be showing up in in simulcast next year uh, through the Metropolitan Opera, George's favorite house in the world, the Bavarian State Opera, uh, has simulcast their performance performance from Sunday the twenty eighth, uh, and it will be able it will be available for live streaming on their website for the next two weeks. And oh, uh, nice. everything I've read about it so far has been rave reviews. I, I watched a little bit of it myself. It's 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 really cool. I didn't realize they were holding it for two whole weeks. That's great. Um, all right. Well, that's it. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR, Henry Moscow and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Uh, you can find him at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Gary Thor Wado and co-host Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera, uh, whether your A is tuned to 415 or 440. We're back on Monday, August fifteenth, uh, August fifth, rather, with more opera news, more hot takes, and more co-hosts. Hopefully, join us then. This is WNUR eighty nine point three FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. Never know.